Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nicole. And I'm Gina. And today we are dishing about thin privilege and fat phobia with body positive dietitian Kimmy Singh. Uh, but first, a little catching up. Gina, what's going on? Yeah, thinking or speaking of fat phobia, <laughs> Paige is officially shot, has shot phobia, is, a, is officially shot phobic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and no, she hasn't been diagnosed. I've diagnosed her with this, but she has intense I believe we call that fear. needle phobia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> It's not shop phobia, <laughs> but it is needle phobia, I guess. That's a better way to describe it. We took her to get her flu shot. And normally with, with shots, like she she doesn't do fine, but we're able to hold her and get the shot in. But if this was just not pleasant, we had to abort mission. And I don't think we're going to go back. And uh, yeah, I I do think it was a mistake, though. Our, our nurse that we normally have, she decided to bring in two actually, no, three other people because it was our whole family. So she thought that they would each do one of us at once, but it was this tiny little room. It, it would have taken two seconds to do the whole family anyway with one nurse. I don't understand how it was any more efficient with three other people. It made zero sense. All it did was make Paige more nervous. Hmm. So I do sort of blame her, uh, <laughs> but we'll try it again next year. But for sure though, I mean, with COVID you know, the, the Pfizer vaccine being approved for hopefully soon for kids. I, I, I mean, I, I would hope that sooner than next year's flu season, we're going to be getting the COVID shot for her and, and so yeah, more to come on that. Otherwise we went to a wedding this weekend where my dad is from up in Northeastern Ohio. It was a small wedding and then it was indoors, but it was really small. We were probably only inside for about 15 minutes and then the reception was out. Side. So it was very safe. I did feel very safe, but had lots of fun. We didn't bring Cameron. So it was a weekend without Cameron, which of course we missed him, but it was also really nice because most of my cousin's kids are girls. So it was literally all girls and Cameron just would have been left out most likely and crying and whining the whole time. So it was a nice respite from Cameron. I think he enjoyed it too, to have some Mimi and Cameron time. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, not a whole lot going on. What about you, Nicole? Oh, we snuck in our last boating trip of the season and boats out of the water. So no more boating. Uh, but it, we, we thought it was going to be a little bit warmer than it was on Sunday. But it was still, I mean, like summer beach wear. But the water has yeah. obviously cooled off. I took a super quick trip to Chicago last Thursday to Friday to see my bestie before she welcomes baby number two into the world. So that was ah. super quick. But we had an awesome uh, seafood meal. And it was delicious and I got to, they're building a beautiful home and we got to walk through it. It's just like framed. Um, it's really cool to kind of walk <laughs> through a house at that stage. Yeah. Uh, Shay has officially turned seven since our last episode. I feel like that I feel like she already had her birthday because we've literally been celebrating since Piper's birthday on September 9th. It's just been like birthday, birthday, birthday. So it was a little lackluster, but she seemed good with it. She got a couple gifts and she's super into Legos right now. Do your kids like Legos? Oh. Oh, Cameron devours Legos. I mean, he is going to be one of those kids who can put together, you know, a gigantic Lego set in five minutes because he's, you know, not even five yet and already just 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yes, he's very much into Legos. Not so much Paige. Paige does like the big Legos and she does build a lot with those and make trains and stuff, but she's not as into it as Cameron. Okay, this is a a dumb question. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. you say puts together a Lego set, you're talking about like, question. I know you're gonna ask. <laughs> but like no, there's he, instructions and yes. so he can walk through them because there's so pictures. No. 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 Okay. That's I knew you were gonna ask that because right as I said that, I was like, I I should probably be more clear. We usually get him this, you know, the ages range from like five to seven is what the Lego kits are for. And no, he cannot necessarily read all the directions and put them together himself. I think this year for Christmas, he'll be getting some sets that he probably can do that. What he does is he just makes his own stuff up. He'll take a set of Legos and just put together something random. And it's not necessarily, you know, anything that makes a whole lot of sense, but he has imagination and... I can see it. And I think that this year when he gets a bunch of Lego sets for Christmas or his birthday, he'll be able to, to start because the directions are actually quite easy. Yes. Because yes. the pictures are, they just are spot on. Yep. Uh, so once you do it once, it's kind of like an Ikea, you know, so wherever you put together for Ikea, once you do it once, you figure it out. It's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. At first, it might be a little bit difficult because you don't really understand how, you know, pictures and what they all mean. But after doing it once, he'll be mm-hmm. fine. So yeah, I think he'll starting this year, he'll be able to do it on his own. But Shay's into it. She's into it. Yeah, it was awesome. cute. Yeah. And you asked last episode what they're going to be for Halloween. We Piper has decided on Princess Aurora, which is what mm-hmm. Shay was last year. So we are going to repurpose a Halloween costume. Parents, that few of you can actually say that. Um, so we are right. repurposing Princess Aurora from last year. And Shay has decided to be Moana. Oh, nice. Like, okay. Now, is Princess Aurora Sleeping Beauty? Okay, I think so, but the only I, I don't confused. think she knows who Princess Aurora is. Princess oh. Aurora is simply in a pink dress, yes. and so that is our attraction to Princess Aurora. That's like funny the because yes, I was asking Paige what kind of princess dress we should buy to bring to Disney, and she said that pink one. And she picked she picked the Princess Aurora dress, and I said, "Do you even know who that is?" She actually did know Sleeping Beauty, but. I'm not convinced that it is. I don't know. I get very confused. Like, I thought she was just called Sleeping Beauty. I didn't, know, I didn't realize she had a name. But I mean, I guess she would. <laughs> why why yeah, wouldn't she? I don't. I, don't I haven't it. seen that movie in since I was probably seven. Exactly. Right. Right. We don't watch that. Um, And you can tell Shay or sh- tell Shay, blah, tell Paige. Mm-hmm. I got my mm-hmm. shot today. My Pfizer <gasps> booster. Oh, nice. Yeah. You're one of the f- lucky few. I know. It was. I mean, the first. I mean, when you back in January 2021, yeah, mm-hmm. when I got my first one, I was like tearful. I was like, I was like, here comes the end of the pandemic, right? And it's like, little did I know, right? Hilarious. Uh, <laughs> um, womp, womp. But yeah, I will say my team has like dropped like flies. Statistically, mm-hmm. I don't know how it's possible that we've had these breakthrough cases, but I will say the cases are so mild as compared to people. I am hearing about, uh, you know, just firsthand, like know them. And if they haven't been vaccinated, like not doing well at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And even a patient lost a spouse. And that was Mm -hmm. so, so sad. Um, So, yeah, I was super excited to get it because it seems like the more protection I can get, the better. Right. Mm, Absolutely. I did hear that fewer people are having breakthrough breakthrough Uh cases. With Moderna. I have heard that as well. Woot, woot. So even though I went through H-E double hockey sticks to get it, uh, maybe I have better protection. I don't know. We'll see. 
All right. So before we begin, just a quick favor to ask, since you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us and they really help us reach more people. So of course, we'd appreciate it. Awesome. So Kimmy Singh is uh, on the show today. She is a fat registered. I just cringe, Gina. We're going to talk about it on the show, but I just, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Uh, But she identifies as a fat registered dietitian based in New York City. She's the owner of Body Positive Dietitian, a a private practice that supports individuals with eating disorders to heal their relationships with food and body. Kimmy supports her clients with a fat positive and anti-oppressive framework and has special passion for working with people that have polycystic ovarian syndrome, like me. Uh, Kimmy's also a sought-after speaker and her has presented at several national conferences. She presents on the effects of anti-fat stigma in healthcare and nutrition. Kimmy's a believer in kindness, compassion, and the power of advocacy. Uh, and you can learn more about her on her website at bodypositivedietitian.com. So without further ado, we will welcome her to the show. All right, well, I'll get us started here. Kimmy Singh, welcome to the show. I personally can't help but feel that this topic has been a long time coming uh, on Dietitian's Dish podcast. And while she's not able to join us today due to scheduling conflicts, my co-host Gina is uh, another dietitian with, uh, she does have thin privilege. And there are times I can't help but think she'll just never get it. You and I, however, are fat dietitians. And I just jumped in with both feet. If I'm being honest, I, I did cringe a bit when I used the word fat in referencing mm-hmm. either one of us. And, and it just still feels a little bit wrong to me. Can you explain mm-hmm. for our listeners a bit about the word fat and why we're seeing it used more and not in the hurtful way it once was? Yes, definitely. Oh my gosh, the word fat. You know, I, I have to say for me, it took quite some time to neutralize that word. And part of how I use it now is totally as a neutral descriptor. I'm a self-proclaimed fat dietitian, and that's so I welcome folks to use that descriptor for my body. But I also know that society tends to associate that word with like every negative stereotype about people in larger bodies. And a lot of people have had like acts of violence, whether like physical or emotional, um, like abuses towards them as people in larger bodies with that word. And so I think that's one of the many reasons it can make folks feel so uncomfortable. And yeah, lots of fat activists have been trying to reclaim that word and stop, you know, say like, it's not a negative thing to be in a larger body. So let's stop pretending that this is a bad word. And it's, it's really interesting because the words that we hear like in the medical community are like the words from the BMI ranges, right? Like the, the O words that I, I try not to describe people's bodies with. And even in like medical settings or in academia, if you actually use the word fat, people seem so uncomfortable with it. And I, I feel like it really speaks to like the discomfort that people have when discussing like weight outside of um, that like medical model, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I guess do you, I'm going a bit off script already. Mm-hmm. How would you describe fat? Like what's fat and what's not? I don't know. That's so gray to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so looking at here in the States, right? Like we have our own sort of bodies that are seen as acceptable, unacceptable, all that good stuff. 
And then um, what? how I usually describe like those that are actually fat is those having enough body fat that's seen as how society would view it as too much excess body fat. And so I, I appreciate like the fat categories that other activists have created that sort of start like the small fat category, I think at about a size 16. Um, so it's either 14 or 16, but it's, it's just, yeah, that's sort of where that cutoff starts to be seen, but it's also where the lines can feel very blurred because a lot of folks that are sort of in that middle ground where they don't feel thin, but don't feel fat. It can be really confusing because they don't necessarily see themselves like portrayed in Hollywood or the media. And even like with modeling, I think it's size 14 or 12 is like considered plus size with models. And so it is really confusing. And I find that the beauty ideal, the thin ideal is so rigid that anyone that's not very thin oftentimes feels like their body has like, quote unquote, too much fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. It's um, that is helpful for me. On your website, Body Positive Dietitian, which is absolutely stunning, by the way, you say, I'm not your typical dietitian. I know firsthand how difficult it can be to trust your body when the world tells you to do otherwise. Can you tell us a bit more about your path into dietetics and how you differentiate yourself from other dietitians? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did not always plan on being a dietitian. My undergraduate degree is, I, I feel like it's pretty far from nutrition it's in physics and I really wanted to do engineering. And then it was after completing my undergrad studies that I kind of like, I took, I was planning on just taking a year off between undergrad and grad school. And throughout that time, I also like sort of unintentionally. So stumbled upon eating disorder recovery, like for myself and my relationship with food. And so it was through that time that I learned about nutrition through this really different lens and I was someone who kind of like learned about diets and nutrition from like, I don't know, like a really young age. And it just blew my mind that out of everything that I've heard and all the fad diets, all that stuff that I I've never heard of intuitive eating and I've never heard of nutrition being anything outside of this kind of like tumultuous black or white rigid thing in your life. And so it was just something that sparked my attention in such a way where I'm like, oh my gosh, I would love to help people in the way that I, I've been supported during this time. And so from there, yeah, then I um, pursued my um, grad program in nutrition and I, yeah, sort of went about it that way. But so I went into the program knowing what I wanted to do. What, so I feel like that's different from a lot of other dietitians, like, because a lot of folks learn about like haze and intuitive eating later in their career. Mm-hmm. but then. Um, also I went into it like in a larger body, in a fat body. And so that definitely made it tougher. It also sort of made me see the training through a different lens. So interesting. So that was a, a second career almost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so thankful I did it because it's still like, yeah, it's, it was really cool. And it's also so much fun to be a student when you know, you're really passionate about something. So I, it's just so different from like, when I think of um, like when I was doing my undergrad studies, even though I was, I feel like I was a pretty solid student, then it just, it felt so much more fun to do something with a really clear ending point in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so as a dietitian, I know people have asked me before, 
particularly my husband, because he can be honest with me, if my weight has ever been a barrier for people in coming to me for nutrition-related help. And I personally haven't found that to be the case. But again, I'm coming from my own lens, right? Do you find Mm -hmm. that people perhaps find you more approachable or even more credible because you do not have thin privilege and you are fat? Mm, Yeah, you know... The people that I work with will tell me that they'll say that, you know, I'm I'm reaching out to you because I feel like you'll get it. And I feel like we have this shared lived experience and like there don't get me wrong. Like I work with folks that aren't fat, too. And yeah, like I, I find that many people that I work with really appreciate that they they know that I can relate to some of these things, that it's something that I also live with when it comes to experiencing fat oppression So it's, yeah, I imagine that if I was targeting a really different audience or if I was like a weight loss dietitian, something like that, like, I don't know if their response would be the same. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but I feel really fortunate to work with folks that not only has it, like they don't hesitate to work with me, but they're also looking forward to working with me or seek me out because of that shared lived experience. Mm -hmm. So speaking of your clientele, you mentioned that they're not coming to you for weight loss. Is are your clients seeking intuitive eating help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Many of them have worked with dietitians for weight loss in the past and it was not a positive experience and they're looking for something different. Um, many of them have been on many different diets, but they're yeah, really looking for an alternative to heal their relationship with food. And therefore is weight not a topic of discussion at all? Well, it can come up, I feel like, but it, it in a different lens. So instead of me saying like, hey, this is the amount of weight you should lose, it's more so like, hey, what has your experience been like in feeling safe with other providers? Do you ever feel like you're uncomfortable sharing like what you're eating because of how, like how you're worried providers might be judging you because of what things they've said in the past? Um, yeah, so it comes up in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So thin privilege can be defined many ways and has deep and significant underpinnings in our society. Those with thin privilege do not have their weight as the first thing somebody notices about them, or they're not assumed to be unhealthy because of their size or judgments made about what they're eating, kind of like what you just said. It's systemic and you you have a platform what has been your most impactful work around health at every size or simply raising awareness of thin privilege in pursuit of equity for people of all sizes? Oh gosh, it's hard to say, but I I would say like what's probably most accessible to listeners is like on my um, Instagram page, which is body positive underscore dietitian. I have like a story highlight and it's titled thin privilege. I think that's the title of it. And it's, yeah, it just sort of, I I ask folks to share like their lived experiences with what they've faced around discrimination and living in a larger body. And so it has a lot of actual responses. It has a lot of like true unfiltered experiences that I imagine that thin folks, even like thin dietitians that have been doing this work, like things that they've never had to think of before. And so that's something that so many people have reached out and said, like, this really opened my eyes to see this in a different light. And it's it's been great to hear that feedback. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think this is where Gina and I, and I I wish she was able to join us today, but this is where we sometimes just, it's so hard with our lived experiences to see eye to eye, for lack of a a better term. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, as somebody with thin privilege who's never lived, that that has never been, has never walked life, right, in in a larger body, it just seems so difficult for me to comprehend. It just seems easy, I guess, to say will eat intuitively, you know, when society's not telling you your body should be a different, different size, different shape. It's, mm-hmm. it's so hard for me to like wrap my brain around that one. It's, I don't know. I know I'm not alone, but, mm-hmm. um, so weight classifications and BMI are universally recognized as a comorbidity as a fat dietitian, where does health at every size intersect with dietetics or perhaps most simply how fat is too fat? Is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what I try to remind folks of is like, first, like health at every size does not mean like healthy at every size. So the philosophy itself is not trying to suggest that every single body size is inherently healthy because that's like not the case, whether your BMI is in like a lower side, medium, higher, like you're, you can still experience um, like negative health like health issues outside of yeah so that that's one piece of it then there's another piece where like there's this big factor of weight stigma and weight cycling and how that affects health and the fact that um people are not talking about that like most dietitians i know they don't learn about the issues with bmi the issues with how it, what came to be and how it miscategorizes people as unhealthy And so we have this huge bias in the training process where all of this is being swept under the rug. And we actually see that this is not just a one-time incident. This is something that's happened over time to people with marginalized identities by modern medicine, by um, the American, the the AMA. Like there's so many, there's so many issues with how, um, yeah, like with how people with marginalized identities have been pathologized or have been treated poorly because of these systems that have what struggle with white supremacy and struggle with recognizing oppression and how it shows up. So it's, I think like when discussing weight and health, there's a huge, huge, huge footnote that needs to be shared because what we find is that when we look at the data, we see that we don't have a way to recommend sustainable long-term weight loss. So that's one piece of it. Then we also see that dieting, like so have um, sort of pursuing intentional weight loss, ultimately results in um, weight gain, weight regain for the majority of people. And that weight cycling is independently associated with many of the health conditions that people associate with living in a larger body. And so all of that being said, then you add in the weight stigma component. What we see is that people are avoiding going to their providers because of their size People are being treated differently, not receiving the same level of care, preventative testing, all of that stuff because of their size and weight stigma. And so we just don't know the role that that has. So that's why I say, although health at every size is not trying to suggest that every weight is inherently healthy, it's also really important to look at that link with a more critical eye that's a little bit less drenched in weight stigma. Um, yeah. And so I, what I find is that when it comes to like how fat is too fat, like those that are on the fatter side of like the spectrum of fatness, 
those are the ones that are experiencing the most oppression, the most marginalization, and oftentimes needs the most fat positive care because that's the furthest, um, like they're what all the messages that they're getting are so shameful are so shaming to them and their bodies. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm going off script, but I can't help but think of shows like thousand pound sisters. Is that a positive thing for fat positivity? Would you say, or is it, is it just perpetuating diet culture and all that we want to shift? Yeah, so it's definitely something that I would say is quite negative. It's something that sensationalizes like the lived experiences of fat people. It's something like similar to any other reality TV, right? Like it's scripted and created. Well, I'm assuming it's scripted to at least a degree and created. So people have certain reactions and it plays into certain stereotypes. And so it's, yeah, I also imagine there are a lot of people working on the show that are not really working towards fat liberation or fat activism. Like those types of shows are usually just created for the views and for the like shock value, so to speak. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So Gina is, I would say a proficient intuitive eater and is now certified in intuitive eating. I personally love hearing from her and just her full embrace of intuitive eating. Well, I'm kind of a bit, I, I struggle to live in it, to live it in and out. And personally, I I do attribute some of that at least to being in a larger body, you know, a significant history of dieting and, and just some disordered eating patterns, exercise patterns, uh, and, and much less being a dietitian who's in a larger body. Do you find gentle nutrition uh, a further reach for those who are fat? Hmm. Okay. So can you tell me more of what you mean by gentle nutrition in this context? Yeah. So um, actually, Gina and I interviewed Elise Rush not too long ago mm-hmm. on the show. And what I learned about intuitive eating and gentle nutrition is that gentle nutrition is that pinnacle, if you will, of reaching a place of intuitive eating that is focused on how foods make you feel um, in all the ways, right? Like, um, but really that, that response, that, that whole body response to the way that you're eating as kind of like you've made it almost like your intuitive, like you are a, a proficient intuitive eater and you've reached that, that point of gentle nutrition. Mm, okay. I gotcha. And see, this is how I conceptualize like the idea of gentle nutrition or like eating in a way that feels good for folks. Like this is where I might stray from like the specific systematic approach just because like I find that for many folks that experience oppression based on their body, especially around size, there are going to be moments where it doesn't feel safe to listen to their bodies, to be in their bodies. And so it's not that they get to this point where like it's all sunshine and flowers all the time but it's more so like there needs to be ways to like have support to take care of themselves outside of that oppression because it's it's something that does take quite a toll and I I imagine for anybody with a marginalized identity like whether it's around size whether it's also like around income it's it can be a lot harder to access that place where you have the privilege to eat in a way that feels good for your body like if 
For instance, like if you're a fat person and you're out to eat in a restaurant and you hear some like another diner making comments about your body, like in that moment, you might feel less connected to your cues. You might internalize that. And this is where a lot of the work with my clients also involves like how to not internalize those types of comments, how to still stay present. Like there definitely were times where those moments like that would have been really tough for me. And now they're absolutely not like I'm not saying that there's never any tough moments, but it's it's something where things can totally shift there and it can be a lot harder to only focus on how you're feeling around food when there are so many other factors that are going to affect how safe you feel in your body in that moment. So I hope that answers your question. I know it's kind of a longer answer. No, I love that. And I think your example of, you know, a diner overhearing a comment is is real and it's it's something that we can all imagine happening if not have happened to ourselves. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, your business appears to be thriving and your message and beliefs are sought after. What about your work? Uh, do people find the most value in? Hmm. I, I don't, I, gosh, this is a great question. I, I find like a couple of things that people tell me that feel specific to my work. Like one is the, um, like messages around social justice and, also the shared lived experience, like as a fat dietitian. And I, I would hope that another one is also like the radical liberation part of my work, then also the like totally compassionate, gentle part of my work and how the two can sit together and coexist. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Those are the things at least that I try to hold close. And in your work, what what does your day-to-day week-to-week look like? Are you between speaking engagements, individual consultation, like where, where's the bulk of your time spent these days? Yeah, I would say the most of my time is like one-on-one nutrition counseling sessions. And then outside of that, probably like, um, some like speaking engagements and then some like, like interviews like this, like that feels like the secondary right now, at least. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And do you find it sounds like you enjoy all of those things. Do you look in your clients for a certain, um, is there a person that you specifically work with? Or are you open to working with anybody seeking your services? Oh gosh. Yeah. I am completely open to working with anybody. I really enjoy working with a mix of people. And I, um, yeah, I find that I, I also enjoy working with people that have different lived experience for myself. So I can continue to support those that I might not otherwise think of. Um, yeah. So I really enjoy working with mix. I, I work with a lot of people with eating disorders or folks that just sort of struggled with chronic dieting and a lot of folks with PCOS. So I feel like most of my clients fall in those categories. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about other dietitians who seek you out for your services? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also work with dietitians that are looking for like supervision or consultation and that's always a joy. I, sometimes it's around more like fat positivity and nutrition work. Sometimes it's around like navigating eating disorder recovery around like South Asian in the South Asian community. So it's, yeah, it's always fun. I, I love working with other dietitians because I find that when it comes to like identifying and working through thin privilege and nutrition, there are a lot of really complex nuanced conversations to be had. 
and it's yeah it's always great and I learn a lot from all of the clients that I work with so it's really cool work to do mm-hmm. well before we wrap up is there anything we didn't touch on or that you wanted to add to mm, I don't think so no I don't think so Well, we thank you so much for taking the time today to chat through this topic. Uh, Personally, I'm I'm on this journey of loving my body as is. I'm like right where you said like that fat kind of starts where people like actually. So that was that just resonated with me. This conversation so personally was beyond meaningful. And I'm grateful to have your offerings in the dietetics world. Please, please, please tell us how listeners can best connect with you and your services after today's show. Yeah, you can find me on my website at bodypositivedietitian.com. Awesome. And you already gave your Instagram, but one more time, maybe? Yes, bodypositive underscore dietitian. Awesome. Kimmy, perfect. Thank you again so, so much. I look forward to continuing to follow your work and support your message. And thanks for all you're doing. Thank you. All right. That was awesome. Gina, mom win, favorite new product or recipe? Yeah. This is one of those products and I'm sure you've all, you can all relate to me here where my kids loved it at first and now they're just not going to eat it, but I'm still going to talk about it. It's the Sabra chocolate hummus. Uh, Cameron, when I first bought it, was eating it with a spoon out of the container. I packed it in his lunch a few times, but I think this goes back to that whole idea of habituation where after a while, you just kind of get sick of something after eating it for a while. That's why it's good to give yourself unconditional permission to eat, right? (laughs) Uh, I think he's gotten a little bit sick of it, but we're still keeping it in the house. I love it. It's just so tasty. It's it's almost like, it's basically a chocolate dip, but it's hummus. So it's made of chickpeas. Mm-hmm. So it's good. It's good. Have you had it? I have. Yeah, I like it. Okay, nice. I'm a fan. Uh, mine is a little different, but you as a college sports fan will appreciate this. Okay, so like college gear. It's just not always like cute. Like it's okay, yeah. but... I found this website at shopthesoho, S-O-H-O.com. Super, super cute college gear for women. Big fan. And they have all the schools, even your dreadful school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) My friend Brett is a Michigan fan, and he was Uh traveling to to the game last weekend. And with our friend Josh, who's an OSU fan, and he was he made Brett put on a OSU hat. And I was like, Okay, I'm going to call you like cough twice if you've been abducted. He was like, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to the shoe. Um, did you guys win? Oh, yeah. Uh, that, yes, we did last week. Mm-hmm. We've only lost to Oregon. Oh, of course. We played, who course did we play? We played Maryland. <laughs> that, well, we shouldn't have lost that game. So it's embarrassing. Oh, my goodness. All right. Mm-hmm. So check out this shop, thesoho.com for cute okay. college gear. Sounds good. Cool. Awesome. All right. So coming up on October 24th, we will be dishing out another self-care episode all about cancer screenings. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram and check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. If you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. Until next time, everyone, be well. And Nicole, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Gina. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.